0: Good evening and welcome to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. I'm John Tanza on this live broadcast from Washington. Here are some of the top stories making news across Sudan and South Sudan this Thursday, February 8, 2024. The head of the Anglican Church in South Sudan says peaceful elections can bring peace in the country.
1: As we set forth to enlighten our people about elections and to monitor their safety during the transition, we will present the same message to them. We will emphasize that peace can only prevail if every citizen
0: put the nation's interests before their partisan interests. And residents of Lanya town get clean drinking water. We'll have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. The head of the Anglican Communion in South Sudan, Justin Badi Arama, says the church is working to prepare the country for a peaceful election. He calls on South Sudanese leaders and the people to put the nation above their own interests. Michael J. Adler, US Ambassador to South Sudan, who was at an occasion for launching a civic education, says his country's key policy in South Sudan is focused on peace through free and fair elections. For VOA News, Manyan David Mayar reports from Juba
2: is speaking during the launch of a church civic education program for the elections. Justin Badi Arama, the head of the Episcopal Church of South Sudan, says the church wants to see the coming elections is entirely peaceful.
1: As we set forth to enlighten our people about elections and to monitor their safety during the transition, we will present the same message to them. We will emphasize that peace can only prevail if every citizen put the nation's interests before their partisan interests and affiliations. The ECS proposal on election seeks to contribute to a peaceful, credible transition elections.
2: On Monday, a Vatican official visiting South Sudan, Cardinal Michael Zeni, called on South Sudanese leaders to work for peaceful, fair and credible elections in December. Arama, who is also the primate of the Episcopal Church of South Sudan and Archbishop of the Diocese of Juba, says the church is concerned about a fragile and insecure environment following a series of communal conflicts and cattle raids in different parts of the country.
1: We must work for the stability of our country because citizens are the ones suffering, whether extension or no extension, whether violence The whole thing comes on citizens. That's why we must stand as a church to help our citizens understand the truth. This role is not just an obligation, but a biblical mandate. We read in Hosea 4, 6, that my people perish for lack of knowledge.
2: In speaking at the same event, U.S. Ambassador to South Sudan Michael J. Idola says a peaceful election is central to his country's policy on South Sudan.
3: It is our conviction that the best way forward to actualize the foundational values in our relationship is for South Sudan's leaders to act with urgency and in a consultative and inclusive manner to take the steps necessary to hold credible and peaceful elections by December 24. And these elections must be peaceful. The South Sudanese people have suffered far too long.
2: Some South Sudanese political parties say the transitional government of national unity has done very little to prepare the country for free and fair elections in December. The former rebels of the Sudan's People's Liberation Movement in opposition insisted on the completion of a permanent constitution and the completion of security arrangements before the December polls. Ambassador Idela hudged the South Sudanese political leaders to ensure these demands are urgently addressed to ensure the electoral process is peaceful and credible. For VOA News, Amanyang David Mayar in Juba.
0: At least 13 migrants died today after their boat capsized off the coast of Tunisia, while 27 others remain missing. Farid bin Jaha, the spokesperson for the court in the coastal city of Montesir, said only two of the 42 migrants who were on board the boat are known to have survived after leaving from Jebanina, a small town near Sfax, according to French News Agency. He said an investigation was open, adding that the migrants were likely exploited in a human trafficking case. The victims were all believed to be asylum seekers from Sudan who had registered with the United Nations Refugee Agency. AFP says they they boarded a fragile metal boat made of scraps, easily welded together. The search for the missing passengers is still underway. Cameroonian military say it has deployed troops to search and free five government officials abducted Tuesday by English speaking rebels near the western border with Nigeria. The government says the abduction follows renewed separatist attacks that has led to the killings of several civilians within two weeks. Muki Edwin Kinzika reports from Yaounde, Cameroon. Cameroon on Wednesday said one of its
4: officials who had been abducted Tuesday evening in the restive English-speaking northwest region bordering Nigeria, has been freed by government troops. Nicholas Mkongo Manchang, the divisional officer for the region's Bamenda 2nd District, was kidnapped at gunpoint with five others, including a policeman, on their way to an official ceremony in Kambay town, the government said. Deben Chofor, governor of the Northwest region, told a crowd in Canberra Wednesday that Manchang and another captive were freed after a swift military operation. The head of state instructed the security services to set free the hostages. Four hours later, the said
1: administrative authority was free. Thanks to the bravery of our military, as well as the bravery of the abducted victims. Authorities, living
4: forces, continue providing the military with all information to free the hostages that has not yet released. Choffer said the divisional officer, known locally as D.O., and the other freed captive are responding to treatment in a hospital in Bamenda where they were rushed to by government troops. Christopher Achobang is a spokesperson for the Ambazona Governing Council fighting for independence for Cameroon's English speaking regions from the French majority country. Achobang said Manchang saved his life by escaping the duo
1: staged an escape because he fell into a ravine and uh, the fighters were not so ready to get into the ravine to rescue him so they left him there wounded and dying he escaped and walked for a long distance where cameroon military then found him and took him to an helicopter which evacuated the duo to
4: bamenda Achobang said Separatist fighters should have killed the DO if he didn't escape. English-speaking Separatists say they consider divisional officers who are heads of districts to be government troops because they undergo military training and as such constitute a legitimate target to fighters. But Cameroon government officials say divisional officers are civil administrators who represent the Yaounde central government and work for the development of their districts. Government troops say Manchang drove past the military-led convoy of government officials traveling to Nkambe and fell into an ambush mounted by fighters. Manchang has not explained why he left the convoy. Separatists say after Manchang escaped, four companions, including a police officer, were killed. The Ambazone governing council said the Separatist forces killed the captives to send a message to government troops that claims the Separatists fighting for an independent English-speaking state have been defeated are unfounded. The government and military have not commented on the alleged killing of the four captives, but on Wednesday night, separatists shared pictures of four dead bodies on social media, including Facebook and WhatsApp. VOA could not independently verify the authenticity of the pictures. Civilians, however, say the pictures appear to be those of the abducted government workers. Cameroon has, within the past two weeks, reported that separatists killed several dozen people in northwestern towns, including Bamenda, Kumbo, and Dop. The government says at least 11 separatists were killed in military raids in Kumbo and Oku, both northwestern towns. Separatists acknowledge their fighters were killed and says several government troops also died in fighting. Edward four is a member of the Cameroon Civil Society Group and a road contractor working in the northwest region. He says the current wave of abductions and killings is either unreported or underreported by local media that fear persecution from rebels and the Cameroon government killings are on the rise kidnapping is on the rise if heavily guarded government officials are kidnapped then what about the ordinary civilian people are moving but they can't move freely these boys will go out to the village get out people and say that they are supporting the military and execute them in public let government try to do something and get this thing to an end for said several dozen people have either been abducted or killed since fresh attacks began in January. Separatists on social media say they will not spare anyone who reports fighters hiding in towns and villages to government troops. The Separatist conflict broke out in 2016 when Anglophone Cameroonians protested discrimination by the Francophone majority. The United Nations says more than 6,000 people have been killed and the unrest has deprived 600,000 children of education. Moki, Edwin Kinzaka, VON News, Yaoundé, Cameroon.
0: You're listening to South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Coming up, the East African community is seeking to harmonize laws on genetically modified organisms. That story is coming up right after the break. If you are in Sudan witnessing events taking place there or if you have family you are talking to there, you can call us on WhatsApp and let us know how things are going there. Dial the
5: international code plus one, then 202 258 3076. The number again, the international code plus
0: one, then 202 258
5: 3076. Hello, listener of South Sudan in Focus. We have an exciting new segment dubbed Words of Wisdom. We want to hear your thoughtful proverbs that echo through your community. This is another chance for you to share wisdom from your roots. All you need to do is record a proverb in a language of your choice, tell us its English translation and what it means. Keep it brief, authentic and represent your community. Your recorded proverb shall be sampled on South Sudan in Focus every Wednesday. Send your recording via our WhatsApp number plus +12026308011 that is plus +12026308011.
0: listening to South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Just like you have heard from my colleague Jackson announcing this opportunity for you, we look forward to hearing your proverb. Today we will hear a proverb from Kenya. My name is Esther.
6: I'm from Kenya. This is a Kikuyu proverb. It says, "Maido mm-hmm. maashiura matigira giangobe the literal meaning of this uh, proverb is the eyes of a frog do not stop the cows from drinking water. The interpretation is that if you need something for your survival, do not shy away from pursuing it. The proverb encourages one to pursue beneficial goals, good deeds, good dreams, and do not allow anyone or anything to discourage you from pursuing your goals.
0: You are listening to South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Some residents of Lanya County say a new water project installed by the International Committee of the Red Cross is a relief to people living in Lanya Town who have been struggling to look for clean water. Some residents of the town praise ICRC for providing services in remote parts of South Sudan. Dennis Longony Reports for
5: VOA from Juba. Alexander Farin, Water and Habitat Coordinator at the ICRC, says the situation of the returnees' population in Lanya town has been dire due to lack of clean drinking water. He says the ICRC and local authorities in Lianya county rehabilitated two boreholes by upgrading them into a better facility to provide clean drinking water for thousands of returnees in the county.
1: Considering uh, the lowest production of uh, two boreholes, It's 5,000 people, but uh, we can also think about the highest level of production, like a day, like today is very sunny. Uh, They won't have any
5: problem of the productivity, so we can reach 9,000 people. Water, a basic commodity in South Sudan, is very expensive for most residents of the capital Juba and other remote parts of the country. One drum of clean water could cost up to two U.S. dollars. Harriet Roba, a resident of Lanya Town, says she used to fetch water from streams far from her home. She says with the new water facility, the community and school children will have access to clean drinking water.
6: I am happy because this water is going to help our school-going children not to miss school because
5: when is water, a child will go to school at any time, and it will also be good for the child to wash at any moment and go to school earlier. Even us, we can use this water for irrigating a backyard funnel to support in development. James Juma, another Lanya town resident, says the new water facility could prevent residents of the county from catching waterborne diseases.
2: Lanya town urban water is a life for our community. It brings water to our homes, ensuring our health and well-being. Today, we celebrate its inauguration and thank all those involved in making this vital project a reality. Cheers to the brighter future of the residents of Lanyatown and all the people who are using the highway uh, through Lanyatown.
5: Demands for clean drinking water continue to increase in South Sudan due to large influx of returnees from Sudan and refugee camps in neighboring Uganda. Yar Paul Quall, the managing director of South Sudan Urban Water Corporation, says the corporation is able to reach 300,000 households in Juba through a clean water facility donated by the Japanese government in March last year. Expansion
6: through the study by
1: Yaga for 2025 was projecting about uh, two million people, 200,000 cubic meters per this is a facility that. Uh, but now uh, we have private companies that are also operational. Uh, we have this uh, 20,000. We have in Lobo, we have about 5,000, and other for, uh, private companies. So the demand continues to be very high. So for us to be able to reach everyone in Tumaini,
5: we need another treatment facility with a bigger capacity. The water facility in Lanya Town uses solar panels to pump water into the eight kiosks in town. The project is implemented by ICRC in partnership with local authorities. According to a 2023 report by UNICEF, only 41% of the population in South Sudan has access to safe drinking water. For VOA News, I am Denis Logoni reporting from Juba.
0: From Juba, we go to East Africa, where the East African community is seeking to harmonize laws on genetically modified organisms used to improve food crops. This comes as regional lawmakers are consulting and scrutinizing policies of the eight member states, an exercise that started on Tuesday.
7: The East African Legislative Assembly started a Tuesday to scrutinize policies of the eight member countries on genetically modified organisms or GMOs. They want to harmonize national laws to be followed by the bloc. Regidion Gatpan is the East African Legislative Assembly lawmaker from South Sudan.
1: We are trying to find out if there are policies in place and if they are in place. Are they being implemented unanimously? by EAC or they are implemented exceptionally by each partner state.
7: Jacqueline Amongin is a regional lawmaker from Uganda.
6: Uh, Been scrutinizing the available laws in member states and also in terms of harmonizing the laws, especially in regards to genetically
7: modified organisms in 2022 kenya became the only member state in the east african community to allow the cultivation and importation of genetically modified maize president william ruto's administration says that allowing gmos was a means to unlock a supply chains and alleviate hunger for millions of people in the country kaleb amisi is a kenyan member of parliament he says farmers are still skeptical despite government allowing gmos
1: GMO has been accepted in Kenya in principle, but in practice is yet to be accepted by the majority of Kenyans. Uh, GMO crops uh, often require higher amounts of pesticides and herbicides, posing a significant threat to the environment and biodiversity.
7: Abbas Mutumba is a large-scale farmer in Uganda. He says that he is willing to abide with what the government recommends.
1: We would like to continue producing healthy food because we produce for markets locally and internationally and as well the food we consume. We want to continue listening to our leaders and our researchers.
7: The assessment of national laws in East African member states will end on Friday and will help the East African community countries to determine guidelines for using GMO crops or banning them.
0: From... Crops. We now go to minerals. Many world's biggest mining companies are meeting in Cape Town to discuss the future of mineral extraction in Africa. They agree that Africa's vast mineral resources will put it at the center of the world's move away from using fossil fuel in the near future. Africa has many of the minerals and metals needed for use in green energy technologies such as wind turbines and batteries for electric vehicles. This means it's also at the center of growing competition among global superpowers for access to minerals such as cobalt and lithium. Darren Taylor reports from Johannesburg.
8: The big question for Africans to ask, says Landre Akinyola of the Norwegian African Business Association, is who benefits from the surge in demand for critical minerals? This is becoming or has already become quite a geopolitical issue. China
0: controls much of the value chain. It dominates the value chain, in fact, in terms of EV batteries, electric vehicle production. That is now spurring, let's say, competition from other parts of the world. The US very prominently, Europe, obviously, but there really isn't a part of the world now that isn't looking to secure access to critical minerals, secure access to the value chain. And that is generating, again, a tremendous amount of interest in collaboration and partnership with African countries.
8: Isabella Nyoka is an economist at EcoBank, a banking conglomerate with operations in 33 African countries. She tells VOA she has a rather idealistic view about the role of Africa's mining and mineral sector in the world's future. Honestly,
6: as an African and as a citizen of the world, I'd always desired for countries and continents to look at geopolitical issues in the context of our global ecosystem of humanity. We need each other to survive. We need each other to grow. Africa now has got humongous deposits of mineral wealth, but we need the capital to be able to develop them, and that capital is sitting elsewhere.
8: Nyoka says Africa will not allow itself to be recolonized by powers that simply want its minerals. Harvesting of the continent's precious metals, she says, must be done through deals that benefit all, not just wealthy elites. At this stage, Nyorka says it's China that's way ahead of the world when it comes to harnessing African minerals. She says while slow economic growth in China has hit African oil exporters, it isn't affecting the continent's mineral sectors because China's heavily dependent on these resources.
6: About 44 or 45 percent odd of the mineral processing potential of the world is sitting in China right now. That's where most of the smelters are, that's where most of the refineries are. And forty-five percent again of the first industrial use of such minerals again is in China, because that's where most of the further processing is happening. So there has been a deliberate policy on the part of China, and I commend China for that. What we had not seen from Europe or from America is that readiness and eagerness to work, not necessarily just on the basis of once, but just to cooperate with Africa on the basis that we're part of a global ecosystem for the development of a resilient global economy in the long term.
8: So, says Nyoka, the U.S. is far behind China with regards to mining interests in Africa, but there are encouraging signs that Washington's refocus on the continent is paying dividends. She uses the example of the Lubito Corridor Project. The U.S. is financing a railway that will take minerals from the Democratic Republic of Congo through Zambia and to the Angolan port of Lubito for export to markets in the U.S. and Europe. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg.
0: From Johannesburg, we come back to Washington, where after holding talks with visiting U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejected a, quote, dissolutional counterproposal by Hamas to a hostage deal brokered by the United States, Qatar and Egypt. VOA's senior diplomatic correspondent Cindy Sane reports from the State Department.
3: Wednesday marked four months since the October 7th cross-border attacks by Hamas that killed 1,200 people in Israel and saw the U.S.-designated terrorist group taking some 240 people hostage. About 135 hostages are still unaccounted for. Ceremonies were held in cities around the world, including Paris. The top U.S. diplomat, Antony Blinken, is in the Middle East to push for the release of the hostages, including six Americans, and an extended pause in the fighting to get more humanitarian aid to Palestinian civilians in Gaza. But Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu dismissed a proposal by Hamas, which reportedly called for the withdrawal of all Israeli forces from Gaza. (laughs) Netanyahu said that he told Secretary of State Blinken that after defeating Hamas, Israel would make sure that Gaza is demilitarized for good. History, he said, has already proved that only one force can promise such a thing, the state of Israel through the IDF and its security forces. At a separate press conference late Wednesday, Blinken had this to say about the Hamas counteroffer.
8: While there are some clear non-starters in Hamas's response, uh, we do think it creates space for agreement to be reached. And we will work at that relentlessly until we get there.
3: In Tel Aviv, a group of freed Israeli hostages appealed to Netanyahu to push for a hostage deal. Freed hostage Adina Moshe said, Again, I am turning to you, Mr. Netanyahu. Everything is in your hands. You're the one that can, and I'm very scared, very afraid that if you continue in this line of bringing down Hamas, there won't be any hostages to free anymore. In his talks with Israeli officials, Blinken said that the death toll of Palestinians in Gaza is still far too high and that any military operation against Hamas needs to put the safety of civilians first and foremost. According to the Hamas-run Ministry of Health in Gaza, at least 27,478 Palestinians have been killed in the Gaza Strip since October the 7th. About 70 percent of those killed are reported to be women and children. More than 66,800 Palestinians have reportedly been injured. Blinken also held talks in Ramallah in the West Bank with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. Blinken will hold more talks in Israel on Thursday and plans to meet with the families of hostages held by Hamas. Cindy Sain, VOA News the state department
0: and that's all we prepared for you this Thursday February 8 2024 I'm your host John Tanza, on this live broadcast from Washington on behalf of our producer Kwame Ophoria and engineer Bill Bass we wish you a lovely evening and remember to join us again tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in focus from the voice of America